HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Oh, lovely Saturday Monday a hearse drove by Stuck on the 405 A lonely Monday drive There's so much they don't tell you They couldn't teach if they tried What's between and before us? The mystery lies. Tuesday I went to work. Wednesday I changed my name. Thursday I regretted it Friday I was crucified Saturday born again Oh lovely Saturday There's so much they don't tell you They couldn't teach if they tried What's between and before us? The mystery lies. The mystery lies. In mystic eyes. In mystic Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, sitting very closely across from Doug Adams. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks for having me. Yes, welcome to New York. 
Yeah. Most people wouldn't leave a Northwest summer <laughs> for a New York summer. I just took a honeymoon in uh, Montana, and this is like a million worlds away. <laughs> Better or worse? Different. Different. <laughs> you know, Montana is so interesting. They make it really hard to get there. Like, you can't just do, like, a three-day in Montana. Sure you can. Not from here. It really, they're just, it's like, it's like just enough flights are like, okay, we got it. Message received. Either, like, either 10 days or no days. Maybe, maybe they're trying to keep it, keep it, keep it how it is. Keep it big sky. Yeah. Uh, You were born in Texas. Um, Well, born born in Colorado, grew up in Texas. Perfect. Uh, What age did you make it to, did Colorado leave any imprint or is it all Texas? No, all Texas. Just, just where you came out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what was what was it like growing up in Texas and, and whereabouts? Um, I grew up in northeast Texas, uh, so northeast of Dallas. Really more, uh, they call it a pine curtain to the south. It's more old south than Texas, the feeling of it. When you're when you're there, it doesn't feel like Austin or, or even really Dallas or Fort Worth. It kind of feels like you're in Mississippi. What is the pine curtain reference? Um, it's a huge pine forest on the, on the east side. Of Texas, like almost swampland. Interesting. So, um, growing up there, was there every place in the South has like a regional cuisine? Was there a specific dish or a specific type of cuisine growing totally. up there that was only for the pine curtain? Pork ribs. Pork ribs. Um, any specific type of breed or just pork ribs in general? G- give me like the ideal dish. I mean, ideal. So, there's barbecue restaurants in in very far east texas that only do pork ribs so you just go in and that's all they serve um heaven that's all it, i mean it is you don't then, even you don't have to pretend like you're going to order something else like you go in like maybe you want the brisket and then you you either get um uh wet or dry what do you get what do you get i prefer dry why oh it's so good i think the rib is just i in my opinion it's the best cut of any animal agreed we serve beef ribs at bullard not to jump ahead but Pork ribs are just my all-time go-to. And I think it's one of the hardest things to get right. Uh, oftentimes, it's over-smoked. The meat shouldn't fall off the bone. It should have some, like, pull. But I really think that dry is, like, a, the best way to enjoy it. How old were you when you realized that not all pork ribs were created equal? Or were you just a kid? <laughs> you were just like, you're like, a rib's a rib's a rib. Oh, man. I think that, well, I was lucky enough to, to go to a to go to great spots so i think i grew up eating but barbecue's barbecue man i'll take i'll take crappy barbecue over a lot of good other stuff where did you grow up going um bodacious barbecue (laughs) it's a spot in outside of longview there's peanut shells all over the ground you sit down all you get is pork ribs and then you eat peanuts while you wait no no sides uh i don't i i can't i don't remember eating sides just like i remember is eating ribs that's amazing. It really also like takes the responsibility off of you because I feel when I go totally. to barbecue, you're like, well, maybe I'll get like two ribs, and you always want like all the ribs, but you're like, oh, I gotta try things now. So like, just ribs, no sides, you no know, filler. And I'll tell you the now when I go to barbecue restaurants, I really look at the sides much more closely because you go to Austin, right, and you you hit spot after spot after spot, and you try like eight different briskets, and they're all good. And your memory, you're like, I don't really remember what like the. the the subtle difference between but sometimes you can but i think that sides are that's kind of where i'm at right now what what do you look for and what makes a good side um well there's there's two either you're gonna go rich with the barbecue or cut through so i'm always looking for texas caviar which is a black eyed pea salad Mm. which i think always like cuts through like tons of celery um and then i'm always looking for great mac and cheese I always love a French fry, or a, a baked fry? or a baked bean. Yeah, just like, this, just beans. This, beans are key. Just like the starch, just to kind of like balance everything you out. Can, you can tell a lot about a re- about a barbecue restaurant by how they use their trim and ends in in like a bean dish Ooh, or a always, Texas red. Like how great do you feel when you get like a piece of meat in your baked beans? Like, oh, it's, a, it's like the it's best. A big like random oh, chunk. It's amazing. <laughs> so you left Texas. Went to Oregon. What what drew you to the? I North? went to I went to Montana actually. I went to college. Back to in, Montana. I went to college in uh, Missoula. Was, okay, that was great. Were, were you cooking there? Uh, I was. I've cooked my whole life. Um, it's the only job I've ever had. Spent in a kitchen. Really, really. Like no, like wayward into like MBA, finance, legal, just just straight restaurants. What was the first kitchen job and where? Um, it was Spring Creek Barbecue in Tyler, <laughs> Texas. I paid, was, paid I in was, ribs. I was let go. <laughs> uh, why? Uh, I was a shitty kid. Okay. 
Official dismissal, shitty kid. Yeah. Rite of passage. That was, and I remember actually, I was let go, and I walked out, and I was like, I'm never going to work in a fucking restaurant again. Mm. It's karma and fate. Then just flash forward. Gathered around me. <laughs> they were, they're like, <laughs> okay, kid. <laughs> so, Missoula. I, yeah, I went to I went to College of Missoula for journalism, actually, and hated it. Mm. Super horrible at school. I was super horrible in high school. I would have dropped out, but my parents wouldn't let me. Um, I dropped out of culinary school, even. <laughs> hated it. But I went to school of journalism in Montana, which is a great school. And I was just caught up in getting out of Texas and that freedom. I, like, East Texas is dry county. Uh more churches and gas stations and I went to Montana and was like freedom never went to class fly fished played bluegrass drank what's your favorite bluegrass song my favorite bluegrass song probably I mean classic nine pound hammer fine Tony Rice do you still play do you still have time to play uh I try to I actually picked up I've been picking it up more and more my wife has been encouraging me to to learn I'm, I'm learning how to have a little bit of balance in my life of recently so what culinary jobs did you have through quote-unquote college that you didn't go to? Um, I worked at a, a restaurant in Missoula, Montana called The Old Post, and I was a brunch cook. And I still to this day tell all my cooks, I think, if you really want to get serious about cooking, I think brunch is by far one of the best services to start at because it's speed and egg cookery. And egg cookery, if you can cook a perfect egg every time, you can cook anything. How many eggs would you go through in a brunch? Thousands. Thousands. Oh yeah, we used to feed the entire Grizzly football team. Oh my god! Sit down. We, it was to order or just like at just like just, just, omelets or just scrambled. It was, it was just a it was like the college town brunch spot, oh, and like, we would just get murdered. And, and I was drinking Jägermeister the entire time. I remember when my kitchen manager told told me that I should that I should season my French fries, and I remember looking at him and being like, "Why?" And he was like, "Don't you like salt on your fries?" And I was like can't be adding like steps to this man (laughs) and it was it was one of the first times that somebody tried to like make me a better cook just a little bit better just just uh, (laughs) salt on your fries just carry that with you in my mind i was like no we can't add like steps man we're busy they have salt at the table but i'll never forget it and i remember him like making some fries for me and he's like aren't they better and i was like oh fuck yeah they are way better (laughs) you're like hey guys Salt on those fries. <laughs> that's, that's the way to go. Don't tell anyone. So then from uh, from Montana, you went to Oregon. To Oregon. And what, what took you to the Northwest? What I mean, obviously, I know why you didn't return home, but why there? Um, well, to be honest, I, uh, I got a couple DUIs. I crashed a car. And I was scared that I was going to go to jail for a couple weeks. And I packed all my bags and I left Montana. And I went to uh, Oregon. I totally ran away. Warrant still out for your arrest? I took care of that. Um, actually, when they told me I was going to be on Top Chef, <laughs> I, I got the phone call. And they're like, all right, you're on. Pack your bags. Hung up the phone. Phone immediately rang. And it's like, hi, this is NBC Universal legal team. You have six bench warrants out for your arrest in Montana. You can't do Top Chef. So I flew to Montana. Um, my boss at the time, Vitaly, thank you, Vito, loaned me some money. And I took care of it. And two days, and then I went on the show. Six, yeah. <laughs> was, uh, Com- compounded or um, six separate uh, instances. Uh, yeah, I, I can't even remember. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But I, I was, I was definitely a troubled, lost, um, kind of individual, and I went to Portland like totally a dirtbag, and I, I was so lucky to get involved with like some good people. Uh, Greg Denton being one of them, the, the chef owner Vox. And immediately when I got into a serious kitchen, like everything started like clicking. I was like, whoa, I needed structure. And, but I, I didn't know what kind of structure, but when I found it, like everything in my life kind of started to fall into place. What did that structure look like? And I'm not talking like salt this fries. Like what did the instruction or like, how did it feel different than a brunch service? It, it was really just me kind of like falling in love with the with the like why you know you get a lot of do this do this do this and then all of a sudden I was truly cooking and understanding why and then having the opportunity to get in a serious kitchen where you're really making people happy like I I became more in tune with that and then everything just kind of like opened up but you know my dad always told me that he wanted to send me to military school because he's like you need it but I was like, oh, I'm so little. <laughs> it won't be good. It won't be good. This but now I understand. In, in a way, like, I kind of went to military school because I went to, like, some 
some pretty intense kitchens and I, I flourished in that environment, that like total structure and do it this way. And there's like a, there's a piece that comes with that. That's why a lot of people like fall in love with the kitchen is that you're, you're stepping with everyone else and you're doing things and everything kind of like lines up and you're understanding why it's not just being told to do something. I was like lucky enough to have teachers to, to open that up for me. And then everything kind of like made sense. How long did it take for it to make sense? Um, I think I was really lucky with some great people and not that long. And then it was, I was just like hooked, right? It was, it's the most adrenaline. You know, I played bluegrass and I love like getting on stage and that like adrenaline rush. And then a true proper like dinner service in a great restaurant. It was like, whoa, I'm sure my pupils just like dilated. <laughs> right. More than a thousand egg brunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because of the skill level and. And you, and you have some feedback, right? You're not just doing it on your own. You're, you're being told, okay, this is wrong do it like this and fix it and you get to see those results in real time and to understand that I mean there's that's such a amazing feeling you have a number of accolades which is kind of well well known territory but we'll just go through Top Chef Boston 2014 Best Restaurant Willamette Weekly 2015 2015 Year Chef of the Year Port, uh, Portland James Beard Rising Chef incredible so you got to Portland in 2008. Those accolades came kind of back to back to back. When did you feel that you were on a different level or that you had become the, the beginning of the chef that you are today? Oh, I still don't feel. I feel like I got so, so, so long ago. I mean, I think that it's, it's good to enjoy those things and listen to them. But it's, it's, I got some great advice from a chef who's like, it's never as good as you think it is, but it's never as bad as you're scared it is. And I think like you get those things and you hear, but it should just, I mean, I'm only seven months into owning my spot. I'm like still a baby, right? I got so much to learn. We're going to take a quick musical break, play a song from our archives, and we'll be back here on Heritage Radio Network.
Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. You're still a newborn. Seven months. <laughs> New spot. Set the scene for us. It's a Woodlark Hotel. You've got three different spots. Yep. Um, I, I knew that I wanted to open up a restaurant, and I started putting the feelers out. And again, I think that I've been probably more lucky than most in my career, but I, uh, I started hearing about a possible project in this old hotel. I went to a couple meetings, and the gal who was kind of trying to find the chef for it was um, a gal named Jennifer Quist who then became my business partner. And it went from like this small idea to a hospitality group. Holler Hospitality. Holler Hospitality. I mean, only a Texas boy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually named after a bar in Milwaukee. I'm going to stay in my wedding. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, so, you know, and I, 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 my number one advice to anybody looking to open a restaurant is like surround yourself with people who think like you, but also compliment your weaknesses i think that that's so you can't do it alone you can't one dish isn't gonna make it for you maybe but you know sometimes shit happens i don't know how many people pitch you on a fried chicken restaurant a few a few they're like this this will work you're like what happens after everyone's had it a few times and what happens every year when someone else does you know new kids come up and in a in a city like portland there's a new restaurant there's a new high restaurant every two weeks um so i met jennifer and it really became clear of like, oh my God, I got so much. This is a big project. So then everything just kind of started. The project was delayed because um, it's super old buildings, which is what I wanted, you know. So as that was delayed, we, we started doing consulting work together around the country. So we went to Nashville and we consulted on a project, went to Green Bay, went to Milwaukee, um, went to Seattle. And I got some great experience in opening. They can be so fast and furious so we got to do we got to consult on on a few different openings and we learned a ton i learned a ton um and then from there we came back to portland and we really had a good idea of how we wanted the entire first floor of this hotel to look and more importantly we knew that we wanted to control it all so we could have all these different options of moving things around and explain how the three parts work together. Totally. So Bullard is the is the main dining room restaurant. We're open for lunch and dinner. Abigail Hall is our bar, open uh, happy hour dinner. And then we have uh, Good Coffee, which is our partners. They're two amazing brothers from Sisters Oregon. And we do kolaches and pastries in the lobby. Can you explain what a kolache is? <clears throat> sure. Um, kolache is a Czech pastry. It's kind of funny. The history book, The history books would have you believe that you know, the cowboys in Texas were John Wayne, but there are really a lot of German immigrants. Um, Fredericksburg, Texas is chock full of Germans. Oh my God. It's Central, amazing. New Braunfels, yeah. Austin. When you look at the beer that they drink in Texas, it's German lagers. It's mm. box. It's, um, and it just so happens that those like light malty beers go so well with, with barbecue, right? Um, so yeah, kolache, it, it, as it came to Texas, they were traditionally like a fruit or cheese filled, you know, nice sweet soft dough square with a filling in the middle texas they kind of switched to a now like the number one if you're in austin texas and you ask about a kolache it's a jalapeno cheddar sausage so that's what we do you have a tex oregon cuisine which might possibly be one of the first of its kind (laughs) what did you what did you take from texas and run through the oregon filter I think we we really took the smoker, and it was really important to me. I love smoking meats. It's it's my favorite way to cook, like low and slow. Um, it just like kind of one pot too. That to me just makes my kind of like heart feel great. But 
<clears throat> I didn't want to let one piece of equipment like define the whole restaurant because we're at downtown. I think a downtown restaurant should hit several marks, um, which is more than just a plate of smoked meat. But I really wanted that piece of equipment to play with because it's so fun and I really, really enjoy eating it. So, I mean, the beef rib is like a perfect, that's like about as Texas as we get in the restaurant. But I think about cooking in Oregon, where cooking in anywhere is about what you have available. So the fish, the vegetables, the fruits. I mean, the farmer's market in Portland is on, and right now it is popping. So we also have a wood-fired heart. So we, anything that comes to the restaurant, we try and and grill or smoke first. Um, I think a perfect example is instead of you you learn your entire culinary career it's like garlic onions olive oil slows so we smoke everything in in the skin Mm. we smoke onions for six hours in the skin and then we cook with it and you're just starting with a like a more complex sweet start to any saute you're doing the garlic will smoke it for so long till it gets almost black and it's sweet and has this depth and then we just go ahead and cook like we've been trained to cook in Oregon but we just add steps I went to school at University of Oregon in early 2000, and they were so pre-farmed at table, just because they would just list out in 2000s restaurants all the all the farms they would go. That when farm to table happened, I I didn't know because I was was in Oregon and they came. That's how you do it. But you know the produce in the Willamette Valley is it's unreal. It's unreal. And then you have like mushrooms. We have truffles. We have right now we're grilling porcini's. We just did a, a porcini fajita dish. I, to, to the horror of my business partner, I went and found like on the border fajita sizzle platters <laughs> and I brought them in and we grill porcinis and then we do like a creamy walnut salsa. And I think that's like about as Texas organ as you can get. I mean, do the Texas people recognize the, the roots? And, oh, heck yeah. And are they into it or do they think it's bastardized? Are they you know a little too proud? Or are they proud of the adaptation? I think Texas people are going to be happy to see a Texas flag anywhere in the world. <laughs> yeah, but your, your flag is not a Texas flag. No. You may... T- tell the, the most, people about that's your... that's the most Texan thing ever is to... <laughs> please, please describe the flag that is in okay. your restaurant. So we, we hung up a flag. It's uh, the Oregon Seal... <clears throat> has like Mount Hood in the background and it has the Oregon Trail cart and we replaced it with Texas Longhorns pulling it and then it's on like you know your typical Texas flag there. when the the mayor came in to do the ribbon cutting and he like looked at the flag and he was like only a Texan would cut up the Oregon flag and I was like yes sir just trying to make it better man have you sold any yet? no no when merch I make, ideas yeah one Trust year me. one year <clears throat> as soon as we can as soon as I make t-shirts it's all over it uh, your wife is part of the project as well Yes, she brewed a beer for us. Um, talk about your wife, her, her background, and, and how you came to the flavor profile of the beer. Totally. Um, Whitney Burnside Adams is a brewer. She's a brewmaster at Ten Barrel, the only female brewmaster in uh, the Pacific Northwest. Really? And she's lovely. Yes. Um, and pregnant. And and pregnant with Com- a little with a little girl. Amazing. Same. My wife is through. Oh, con- congrats. Congrats. Yes. It's a, it's a wild ride. Yes. I'm still waiting for the handbook in the mail. I haven't... I'll send haven't, you mine. Got, yeah. Um... But when beer is like so important to me, and we have this amazing, uh, we have an amazing wine program. Because, but I think that in Portland, beer is so important. But in restaurants in Portland, it's it becomes an afterthought. And you see the same IPAs, you see the same. So we really wanted to dive a little bit deeper. Even with like the craft beer, I remember drinking so many craft beers that would like come and go when I was in college. You still see the same ones over and over again totally. on tap. You see the big boys over and over, and it's tricky to pair. You know because. We love big IPAs in Portland, and it's a really hard thing to pair with food. Mm. So, of recently, a lot of brewers have been brewing more like old school, like light lagers, which is really exciting. But I, when you go to Texas, like Shiner Bach, it's like the beer, right? And it's it's not super light. It's not a pilsner. It doesn't have that bitter quality with a ton of hops. And we wanted kind of a, a sweet but light Bach, and Winnie brewed us the Buller Bach. It's fun. We opened up with a signature beer day one. How many iterations did it have to go through till she nailed it? She nailed it on two. Really? And how far was one from two? I couldn't even tell the difference. Right. It's like your brisket taste. Oh, I, I tried it and was like, oh my God, this is the best beer ever. You, you nailed it. She's <clears> like, no. <laughs> and totally. Is... And just how you know I am with food. You like try it and you're like, no, 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 it needs more work. It needs more work. But, and everyone's like, this is an incredible chef. What do you do? But the wine, I mean, we're having so much fun pairing wines with like smoked meats. It's it's something new, and our, our wine guys like having the best time from sweet 
Rieslings, mm. like a sweet, amazing ice cold Riesling with like smoked barbecue. It's crazy. So we're having, and some Pinot Noirs are so great. We're just trying to hit, I think a downtown restaurant and a downtown bar should like check a lot of boxes and that's what you sign up for. But still has to stay within <clears throat> its creative world. Totally. It can't just be like, we're doing this for the because sake of doing this. Because then it's just muddled and you get this kind of blah. So what is like... I always like to think about if I'm alone with a good book, maybe a sci-fi novel, that I go to the bar and I sit down and have one dish and one glass of wine. What am I having there that's like, I'm going to think about this for a year? The only stipulation would be is how hungry are you? I mean, could eat anything. Okay. You're going to get, you're probably going to get a beef rib at Bullard with fresh flour tortillas and guacamole and bread and butter jalapenos. And then what we what I love about it is like it opens just you could have a, a rad margarita, you could have a glass of wine, or you could have a beer. Great. And what type of wine would I have with it? I would say I would go like a, a white, mm. a crisp, refreshing white. And then just go up to the hotel, take a nap. Yep. Come, come back for some ice cream. Come back for some ice cream. <laughs> uh, one of the things I read about you is you talked about like the imposter syndrome kind of like based on brisket. You you're taking Texas traditions and you're making things in Oregon, and you're going up against ideals that have been perfected over not just decades, but generations. generations. Uh, how, how do you wrestle with that? Because it's something that I think chefs don't necessarily always share, that they're feeling like, oh, it could be better, or as you mentioned, one moderation, a little bit of this. Totally. How do you, <clears throat> and then also with the very real timeline, is that like at some point you just gotta kick the food out the door? Totally, and I think transparency is one of the best new things in our industry. And I love it. And I think that there's, it makes your staff trust you more. It makes you know yourself better when you're like, we don't, we don't really touch brisket very much at Bullard. And I, there's so much respect. I touch it in at my house, um, but we're not a barbecue restaurant, you know? So we smoke beef ribs. It's a super, very beautiful marbled short rib cut. Not like the Chuck, Chuck rib that you get at most barbecue restaurants in like Houston or, or Austin. But I think transparency is just great. And sometimes you have to say, like, Bullard will never be a restaurant where you just go and get a bunch of sliced brisket and some white bread. And that's totally fine. And I respect the hell out of people that, you know, I might do a crudo too. That doesn't mean I'm, like, doing sushi. Can you clarify what you mean by transparency? I think Top Chef really did show me in a lot of ways that one winning isn't everything because you can't win everything and your failures will define you just as much as their successes uh and that's not a bad thing and you can't be scared of it and there's nothing wrong with saying we're not going to mess with brisket because we don't have necessarily the time or the 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 systems or the 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 makeup to to get it right and The, the one thing that I'll take away from Top Chef is, you know, like the, the foie gras with Jacques Pepin was like the worst day of my life, right? And I literally thought when I was done that it was going to define my career and that I was going to be like the laughing stock of Portland. And the best thing to remember about the industry is nobody really gives a shit. If they watched it. <clears throat> they don't give it nine times out of ten. They don't care what you did in the past. They're probably not. It's all about like in the moment. It's about you. It's your growth. And... I think you'll have better employees and you'll have better cooks. I always want my cooks to own up to their mistakes. And <clears throat> you can walk away with a, from that Jacques Pin experience and be like, well, I was set up. You know, it was, I fucked up. I didn't have enough time. <laughs> I spun out of control. I lost control of my emotions and my, and I want my cooks to do the same thing to me and be like, we can fix this together. But don't give me shit and cover it up. Like own up to it. And if you learn from it, then it's not a mistake. Do you think chefs at a young... You're saying this now from a chef who's got his own restaurants, but do you think chefs can be transparent in that way, even at the beginnings or early stages of their career? I think that... I mean, I would hope so. I think that it's it's tough, right? Because you want to impress, but I'll always hire a stage who doesn't lie or cover up. I think it's like, own up to it. Because if you overcook the burger, we're going to cook another one. I'm not going to fire you. I'm going to fire you for lying. I'm going to fire you for stealing. But let's let's figure out how we how we screwed up and talk through it and then we'll create systems to make sure that it doesn't happen and that's how we get better. That's how you get a stellar restaurant in my opinion. 
Chef, I want to thank you for coming on Snacky Tunes. Where can people find you, make reservations, make Bullard, their way to you? BullardPDX.com, Woodlark Hotel, Abigail Hall. Come and see us. We're always open. Last question. All-time favorite on-the-spot bluegrass player? Tony Rice. Guitar. Yes. We're going to play another song from the archive, and then we'll be back with the second part of Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. Regular size, regular drink, regular fries, regular pesticide, regular car, regular house, regular dads, regular channel five. That's just a regular life. Hey, hey, it isn't so bad. We all want to be someone. Regular girl, regular curl, regular video games and squirrels, regular cinnamon swirl, regular job, a regular tan, a regular man, a regular diamonds and pearls. That's just a regular world. Hey, hey, it isn't so bad. We all want to be someone. Enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Linda Liu, and I'm the host of Feast Meets West, the show that celebrates Asian culture through the lens of food here on HRN. Listen to episodes like The Evolution of Chinatown with Numwa Tea Parlors, Wilson Tang, and New York Times Elaine Chen. Catch our ongoing series, Women in Asian Food, and spotlight episodes with our heroes like Anita Lowe. You can find Feast Meets West wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are at the legendary Danger Bird Record Studios in gorgeous Silver Lake. It's always gorgeous because we're in California and we have one of California's born and bred Matt Costa, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks for having me. Uh, raised here, lived here, mm-hmm. never leaving. Um, I, I've left. I've, I've moved to other places, but I was born actually right down the street at what's the Dream Center there, off the 101 in Rampart. Were you born in the Dream Center? I was born in the Dream Center. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Was your family part of the Dream Center? 
Uh, no, at the time it was a it was a hospital, like a uh, normal hospital. I don't know. I don't know what the Dream Center is now, but at the time it was a yeah. It was called like Mary Queen of the Angels Hospital. For those who don't know, the Dream Center is it is a nebulous sort of place where uh, groups of men in black t shirts will walk around and clean up Silver Lake. <laughs> okay, but yeah. I don't know what else they do. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so born and bred L.A. Uh, yeah. Do you find that like being from L.A., living in L.A has influenced your entire uh, music career writing approach to being an artist? Um, well, I mean, I grew up in Orange County, so Huntington Beach and, mm-hmm. and that area. So, you know, just outside of it. And uh, But, yeah, I think just living in California in general, especially on this record, it's been, um, you know, with geographically and those things, have, um, it's come out. And I grew up skateboarding and stuff, too, and so just being here... Um, in one of the meccas for skateboarding, uh, that influenced my music a lot too. Just the music and videos and stuff. What about the videos? What about the visual artistic of skateboarding videos? Because would you like what '90s skateboarding videos? Yeah. So, and what do you bring to that and that aesthetic? Because that's a very like OC skate videos are a very niche type of uh, approach to making art. Yeah, I mean, because of that, it was like there was a lot though. You know, there was a lot of the kind of when you, I would watch like girl skate videos and stuff like that, Ooh. where they're SF and yeah, also, yeah. and also in um, LA here and and all the world industries and blind videos and stuff like that, where they'd skate LA a lot, and also the music in those was really cool. I got turned on to like, I mean that was the first time I remember like you'd hear stuff on the, the radio and things like that, but especially like in my parents' car or something. But then I listened to there was like Van Morrison's song Caravan in oh, yeah. TC video, and I thought. All of a sudden, Van Morrison was cool, you know? Right. It's, uh, I felt like that those 90s skate videos were such a great postmodern approach to making art because you would have these, like, amazing songs, but when these, like, young kids just ripping. Yeah. And sometimes it would just create this whole new type of, of like, piece to enjoy. Yeah, yeah, totally. And to show it, I guess, as an artist, would show that sort of you could bring in all influences to what you wanted to create without having to feel that, like, you had to leave stuff off the table because it wasn't cool or not cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, it just it just was, you know. There was all, you know, obviously there's all sorts of stuff. There was, you know, obviously, like, there was Misfits and Danzig and stuff like that. And yeah, stuff I mean, stuff there's, too. Yeah, and yeah, then, yeah. I mean, which I like, I listen to that as well. But yeah. then there was also, there was a lot of hip-hop and soul, and then there was a lot of the classic stuff. And, and um, yeah, it just, it didn't really, it didn't really matter. So when it was in there and then it was associated with the visual then it was all. Then I was. Then I was hooked. You know. So you started getting it. When did you first start writing music? I know you've been doing professionally off and on for about. I mean, not off and on, but on for about fifteen years. But yeah. when did you start to dabble? Younger, when you were skateboarding, or when you were a little bit older? Yeah. No, I just play. I just played music then. I didn't, yeah. And I didn't really play that often. I just, you know, I just played guitar and a little bit and trumpet and stuff like that in school band. But when I was nineteen or so, is when I started. Is when I started. Uh, trying to write, just like really digging into songs more, like studying whatever, just like learning whole songs and thinking about lyrics and those kind of things. Was there a shift? Is there always, you know, is there, was there a, uh, do you remember a moment when you went, I'm going to go after this as something I want to do with my life or was it just a natural progression? Yeah, it was just a natural progression for me. I mean, I, d- I was, I broke my leg skateboarding really bad mm. and a lot of my friends at the time you know, we were all getting sponsored and, you know, they were all kind of, some of them were already going pro and things like that. And um, then that's what I wanted to do, but then I broke my leg and I thought I'd be back in like three months or something and keep going. But then it ended up being about a year and two years. And then by the end of that, I like, I really had to train myself to walk again. And so uh, riding a skateboard, going down big handrails and stuff like that and doing the things that I wanted to do seemed really out of the question, at least for the time being. And during those two and two years and three years of like basically recovery, and still even now it's not fully back. I guess I could have done better physical therapy and things, yeah. but um, the uh, that's when I started writing songs. And then within four years, and I kind of started doing shows and had some people who were like, you know, I, I just had released some things and people were, you know, excited about it. Friends of mine, and then just I just kind of kept going with that. But it never was like I want to do this for a career. It was more just sort of like I like I like music, and I just want to try it out. I mean, seeing how you've had a pretty pretty good run as a musician, yeah. 
Do you find that moment where your life sort of diverged with that accident as something that you look back on like this? I'm happy this happened now, or do you see it as something where you're like, you found a way to channel like what happened to you into something that making what your life is today? Yeah, I think all that stuff, the development when I was a kid, just skateboarding is just like just shifted into the shifted into songwriting. Same sort of discipline and same sort of. It's a lot of discipline, like getting up, doing that trick over and over and yeah, over yeah. again. So applying that to music is a great way. To be like, I want to get this chord. I want to hit this timing, right? Totally. Yeah, and I think also too. But there's things that I did want to like um, that I did want to do different because I remember that. When I was young, it was all just like muscle muscling things and going, 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 mm-hmm. and and then when I when I started writing music, then I realized that you know you can sit and learn you know, and I still do. You'll learn scales and you gotta learn all the the kind of fundamentals of it. Sure, um, but I realized that you know not not you know not muscling. You can't you know you can muscle a, a guitar part or a song or something like that, <laughs> right. but you have to like. It gets more, you know, introspective, and you have to be more thoughtful with it, and that's when the best stuff comes out. So when skateboarding, I did that. I saw some people who put that approach in skateboarding, and they were always better, you know. And right. then it, it took me to like stepping away from it to see that, and then I started applying that to my, or I've always tried to apply that to my music because, um, because I, I just, I just know that it makes, at least I think it makes for better, better, um, better art. Well, speaking of better art, let's hear a song. All right, I'll try. To, I'll try to play a. I'll try to play a good one here. Oh, you're gonna play a great one. Uh, what do you got for us? Uh, let's see here. This one is a song called Pacific Grove, and I found this drum machine here, so I figured I'd use it. Awesome. Back to Pacific Grove When those monarchs 
bucks and come back home I know I won't make it alone With love and laughing and diving When that evening sun goes down And meet halfway in Pacific Grove We'll meet halfway in Pacific Grove Awesome. Sweet. Sweet. That's a great one. Thanks, man. Better than a good one. All right, cool. I'll um, take so that. After you started playing for a few years and you started putting stuff out, when did you feel both like that your career had started and then you were also starting to hit the stride of the music that you wanted to make instead of muscling through that you were like finessing and like curating the songs you were writing yeah well i always um i kind of always thought about i kind of wrote i tried to write um write um write songs that i would um would have to would have to grow into or something. I mean, mm. I'd, so I, I would um, I'd write ideas in order to push myself to like become them, you know, in that sort of sense. I like that. And then, uh, but you got to man up to the songs you wrote. A little bit, yeah. yeah. And then a lot, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes they're you're not ready for it. It takes you have to put them away and then you come back to them. But can so, you give me an example? Um, well, let's think about that. Um, yeah. Well, on my first record, um, let's see here. On my first record, um, there were there was some finger picking songs, and there was some, uh, and there was also some electric guitar stuff. And and I felt, I mean, those took a while to to write and create. It was like about a two or three year sort of process. Gotcha. Um, so during that time, I had ideas, and I'd be developing them, um, and. Um, so for when I did a record called Mobile Chateau, which was my, which was my third record, that's the first one that I self-produced. Mm -hmm. And so some of the songs that were on that, I'd had um, the ideas for a little while, but I just didn't have the right um, production techniques or different things that I wanted to needed to even like hear them back the way that I, I needed to to perform them. Yeah. And so uh, also spending a couple years or two records on the road traveling and doing things, then you understand, you know, just how stuff works in a live situation versus studio situation and all those things. Does that matter to you as, I mean, especially with the new art, the new album, uh, Santa Rosa Fangs, Rosa Fangs, where it's like a concept album straight to finish that's mm -hmm. telling us narrative. So obviously you're, there are things you're thinking about their studio application and then live application yeah well when i did this record um i worked it up with uh with uh my friend peter peter matthew bauer and nick stump and i think the goal the whole time was to write songs that would just be deliverable really strong live mm -hmm. to where i could go out there with my band and and just have them be really impactful mm. even more so than other songs where you know you're missing the like three guitar parts that are like weaving together or something right, right. when you just have you know when you don't have all those things you're and a lot of times that's fine you know but as the when you have the idea you want to deliver it in its entirety so these ones for the most part there was um you know there it was um they they worked in probably some of the best songs i think live as far as really having a punch to them yeah I feel that at least when I when I play them on this tour, and that feels really good because after doing so many records, to feel that to still feel that way, it's it's a great feeling. Do you feel that you pull a little of the punch when you're recording it, so that when it comes out live, people are like, "Whoa, this is a whole other experience," or do you try and pour as much into recording it as you do into the live show? Mm, I think the recording stuff is more just like um, it's different because you can. You know, it's it's really hard to capture the the immensity of something on a recording, so you have to capture it. It's more of like I think recordings a lot of times are um, 
they they're all like your perception of uh, of the way it's sonic perception of it, you know. So if you uh, just because you you play in a room really big and really loud, you can mic it up doesn't mean it's gonna sound really big and loud. Sure. So I mean, sometimes you have to make things really small in order to like you know a vocal or something, things like that, have it sit in the mix where everything else sounds huge, but it's just perspective and of how the track sounds, um, you know, audio, audio illusion sort of sort of thing. Um, and then performance is key, you know, as far as um, as that as well. So I think you perform it good, but um, yeah, those studio things are, are a little are a little different than just when you go live. When you go live, you just want to get in there and like you know you can fill up a room with the sound, and that's you can you can't ever recreate that on a record, I don't think. So, um, and yeah. also the actual physical vibrations that you're getting from it. Oh, in the, the room physical too. feeling of yeah, it. Yeah. I love that when you're in a yeah. room and you you can feel the the music like in your body. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Uh, can we hear another song? Sure, yeah, yeah. What do you got for us? This one, um, this one is a song called Sharon, and I'll tell you a story about it. When I wrote this song years and years ago, before I'd written this song, I, I was sitting with a friend of mine, and she came over to my house. Her name's Liz. She's married to my drummer now. And at the time, she had a shaved, she had a shaved head, and I thought I was, I was, thought she was pretty cool. Yeah. And she was playing banjo, and then I sat down. I had my guitar, and I was talking to her, and I said, I have this weird like tick that keeps going on like circling in my brain sort of like uh, Oliver Sacks sort of thing <laughs> and uh, then but I, I hadn't read any of that then so I just thought I was going crazy and it was sort of ran, ran, ran it was just when I stopped playing music I stopped doing anything whatever happened I had this you know hamster wheel of a sound that was going on in my mind ran, ran, ran and then years went by um, well before that she had told me uh, she's like you should put it in a song and I was like well Uran, Uran, it doesn't make sense, you know. I don't, Uran, 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 I don't know. It took me a long time to really, to try to make something work. And I sat down again years later and it turned into like Duran, Duran, Duran or something like that. I was like, I'm, this is dumb. <laughs> then I sat down to do this record. I'd written one song, I remember it well, was the first song. And then when I went down to write the second song, um, I started playing my guitar again. I started going, Duran, 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 the Sharon, Sharon. And it turned into Sharon, and so Sharon revealed herself to me, and then I made her the centerpiece for the record. And so that's how that came about. It's amazing. That's one of those ones, like, you know, I was talking about earlier. Yeah, how that you, like, will yourself, you man up, you will yourself yeah, into the song that's in your... A sound that for years and years was just, like, phonetically it sounded nice in my head, but I had no idea what it was, and then it turned into something years later. Amazing. So, so that we're going to hear right now? Yeah, this is Sharon. All right, here we go. She's going out tonight. See your aquarium friends Amongst the buffoons and the bogarts She's strung out again She knows now what she does She knows not how she feels She don't know if she's living or dying Her pockets full of She's colder than the coast of Maine Sharon on a snowy winter's day Sharon, she cut you like she cut me Sharon, it's a new region on the sea Sharon Sharon, Sharon, Sharon Sharon, Sharon Sharon, Sharon, Sharon With all the lawyers at the bar I know you're going through those changes Yeah, I know you're going through those changes And I've seen you going through those changes Gone, gone, gone And still your daddy pays your rent She knows now what she does She knows not how she feels She don't know if she's living or dying her pockets full of pills And she's colder than the coast of Maine Sharon on a snowy winter's day Sharon, she cuts you like she cut me Sharon, and said you raging on my scene Sharon Sharon, Sharon, Sharon 
seven, 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 seven. Awesome. All right. Good tune. Thanks, man. Good rhythm. So do you feel now that you've gotten that tune out of your head, does it feel better that you can share it with people instead of just having it go around around in your brain? Yeah. That's why it's called Sharon. <laughs> um, so Sharon is the uh, central character in your new album. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's a concept album. Beautiful story. Um, how did it come about? What made you want to do like uh, sort of a... Uh, like a whole narrative throughout your whole album. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the stories um, come from from my life or people who I know, and I've kind of tied them all together into sort of her and, and me sort of narrating it. And I imagined it like with this, um, with a, you know, seeing the movie before um, I'd actually made made the record or made the movie. And so as, um, you know, I thought about kind of these songs sort of, um, being the, the score for it, and I'd come off the heels of doing a soundtrack to a documentary called Orange Sunshine. Yeah, and so I was really, um, I was in the in the mode of working with visuals and creating things that were um, hand in hand. Um, together, they worked symbiotically. So I just um, I took that same concept and decided to make this record. And then as it as it's gone on, then um, the then the story is like revealed more, and and I think eventually I'll turn it into I'm working on writing a screenplay to it now. So kind of doing it reverse. That's awesome. It sort of ties back to the skate videos and the music. And it does, yeah. Tying it all together, the songs and the video and things like that. It does. I think that when I was a kid, I mean, I I wouldn't make my own music for them when I started, but you know, I'd find my own records that I liked, and then I'd get the CD player, the cassette player, and then my VHS player, mm. and I'd put the audio into it, and then I'd get another VHS player, and then oh, dub it cool. over and make my own skate videos. That's how you make your sponsor me videos. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, and so now you're just doing it in reverse. I guess so. Yeah. Um, and so with the new album, um, it's a very California album. Like, yeah. do you feel that you've let your Californian like pride and heritage really shine through on this and do you feel that there's a unique story that you're telling about California that that you have that maybe the world doesn't know you know because a lot of times when people think of California they think of like a very specific yeah. maybe like a Hollywood story or a San Francisco story or like a, you know uh, hiking through the woods in the north uh-huh. are you telling a different type of California story well I mean I'm I'm just speaking from my own experience and people that I've known but I think it's not I mean it is California because this is where I'm from and some of the cities that I name and things like that. But I also think that it can be, you know, it's sort of that place and those memories can exist anywhere, you know. It just hap- mine just happens to be in California and there's the cities that, that come of it. And I grew up here, so that's that's my story. But the funny thing is, is that um, the record before this record, I went to Scotland hmm. and I recorded over there. And, um, and I'd grown up listening to a lot of like British folk music and I'd listen to a lot of like Brit pop music, mm. and so, um, so I had these ideas of going and re- like recording up in like Scotland and the Highlands or something, and oh, recording yeah. these like this music. I, I ended up being in Glasgow, and and I'd recorded with um, with uh, some of the members of Bell and Sebastian, who has a big fan wow. of their music. Yeah, I, I love them too, and and um, so it was by it was by no means a. Uh, a traditional uh, Scottish folk record. It was, and I'm I'm happy for that because that's not the kind of record I wanted to make. But I did slide a little bit of those influences in there here and there. But when I was there, I was I was talking with um, Stevie Jackson, and he played guitar on it, and we became close friends. But he was more, you know, into romanticizing the other side of the pond. He was just talking about Graceland and told me more about Elvis than I knew from being over here. <laughs> right. And then I was more into like talking about like going to San- like the apartment where Sandy Denny lived and Incredible String Band and things like that. Yeah. And so, but for that reason, I do know a lot of uh, sort of uh, traditional Scottish songs. I-, I could play you one of those if you want. I mean, if you want to end on that, we can. I can, end on yeah. That. I'll but do uh, it. before we end on that, um, you know, 
now that you have the album, now that you have this big story, uh, do these characters continue beyond this album? Is it something that you've now brought these people to life through your music and, you know, hopefully through uh, screenplay, things like that? Like, how do you live with these characters that you you create? Do you feel responsible for them to see their lives through? Or is it just like, here's a, a moment in time where you you've opened a window into their world and then you're moving on to look into something else. Yeah. No, I think that they'll definitely stick around for a while. Um, I mean, the thing was is that, yeah, it, it's like I've opened the door, opened the door to them and now they're, now they're in the room. So, um, but the interesting thing was, um, you know, about telling a California story and within, within Sharon and within, the whole thing. There's a lot of people that I know that are close, and myself as well, that are in, that are inside of inside of these songs. But it took going to, uh, it took going across the sea to like to come home and really appreciate and write a California record. And so sometimes when I sit there in the hills, I still play my Scottish songs when the mist rolls in, just to mess with people. Yeah, that the green layer is a good inspiration. Um, before we go, where can people find your music online? Where can people find you, uh, keep up on your tour and your travels? Yeah, they can just go to, um, well, I have Instagram, Matt Costa Music. Yeah. And then they can go to my website, mattcosta.com. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, that's, those are the, I think those are the main ones. I have Facebook and that kind of stuff, too. So. Whatever, yeah. It all links together. It all links together. Yeah. Uh, well, Matt, thank you so much. Cool. Congratulations on the tour, on the new album. Good yeah. luck on the screenplay. Thank you. And uh, what are you gonna take us out with? I'm gonna leave you with a with a uh, with a California take on a uh, on a bagpipe tune. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And thank called. you so much to Gingerbird Records yeah. Studios. We'll see you next time on Snacky Tunes. Matt, take it away. Sweet. Yeah, this one's called Banish Misfortune. is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.